Welcome to Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store Regent Street in London. Would you please welcome our guest moderator, news editor for Empire Magazine, Chris Hewitt. Everyone, thank you for coming. Uh, David Lowry is one of the brightest new voices in American cinema, and if you don't believe me, you should check out his debut film, The Elegant and Haunting and Powerful End in Body Saints, starring Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara. Before we meet David, let's take a look at the trailer. Dear Ruth, I dreamed about you again last night. I hold your face in my mind. I think about your belly getting bigger. I think about our baby girl. I think I shot someone. It's gonna be okay. All you gotta do is wait for me. I don't know why you kids did what you did. What do you want to do now? I'm gonna wait for him. I know you know I'm out, and I hope you know I'm coming for you. Just like I always said. I'm putting into all this right now all by myself. All I'd have to do is tell the truth. Whatever it is you've done, when I see you with your daughter, all I see is good. People talk about regret, but I haven't got any. I traveled high and far, and now I'm close. I'm so close to you, I can almost reach out and touch your cheek. Those girls, you got trouble. Well, maybe you get out of town until all this blows over. You mean until he gets caught? Have you seen him? Sure haven't. We can make it if we run. Every day I wake up thinking today's the day I'm gonna see you. And one of those days, it will be so. And then we can ride off to somewhere, somewhere far away. Please welcome the writer and director of End Body Saints, David Lowry. <laughs> Sprinting on stage. Hello, sir. Uh, thank How's you. Going? Thank you. Pretty good. Pretty good. Good, good. good. Welcome to London. Thank you for having me here. Uh, this is just your latest pit stop of this movie. This has been quite a surreal year for you, hasn't it? You've been Sundance, Cannes. Where else have you been with it? Uh, Carlo Vivari, Munich, uh, um, and then all over the US, which was nice as well. And so it's been, yeah. I, I've, it's been a remarkably jet-lagged year. <laughs> <laughs> is that just the main thing you're going to take away from it? Just no, I'll take uh, away quite fog. a bit more. But <laughs> <laughs> okay. So not just a fog of jet lag. Yeah, energy. exactly. Okay. So um, in terms of, you're coming to the awards, the end of it now, is it, is it almost the case now, as a movie gets released, are you ready to let go of it? How, what's it like for a filmmaker? Is, is it is, it's really interesting. I, I remember we opened about three weeks ago in New York, and I was there, and... and it was a very busy week, lots of press, lots of activity, and then the morning that it opened, I just woke up and didn't have anything to do. And I, you know, I had to go do some <laughs> Q and A's later that night, but there's nothing to do. And and it was a really remarkable feeling of it being out of my hands and being something that I could let go of, which was nice. And you know, it's it's really hard for me to let go of movies, and I come, I want to keep working on them, keep making yeah. them better. And then at a certain point, you just send them off. And so it was actually very nice to not. You know, it's not mine anymore. It's out there in the world, and, and that's a, a nice feeling because it means I can move on to the next one. But do you tinker with it even after, say, Sundance? Do you change things after? After Sundance, the I change things. Yeah. But you know, once you know the, the version we showed at Cannes is the version that's opening in okay. theaters, and, and I don't ever want to touch it again. You know, it's like <laughs> they're, they're, I, know, I, I understand the the appeal of going and doing a director's cut, and then another director's cut, and then the special edition DVD director's cut further on down the line. But um, I like to you know have it ripped out of my hands and. and okay. 
Because otherwise, I'll never get another movie made. <laughs> I, can, yeah. I can mess with it for forever. So in 2045, you're not going to go back and CG in spaceships? Exactly. And yeah, yeah. You know, I can just make it the CGI Ben Foster and have a couple <laughs> extra scenes in the background. That would be interesting. So yeah. for, we've seen the trailer, but for the people here and the, the people on the podcast, can you explain what the movie is, what it's about? Yeah, it's about a, a, a sort of outlaw couple in Texas in the 1970s, and their names are Bob Muldoon and Ruth Guthrie, and the film begins with them being caught. They, they're, they're caught right up front. They've been on a crime spree, robbing banks. We never get a clear idea of exactly what they've done, but the general idea is that they were sort of like Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. And... So within the first five minutes of the movie, they're caught. It picks up right where most movies would normally end. And then we skip ahead four years later as Bob breaks out of prison and sets off to try to re reunite with Ruth. Absolutely. I read an interview with you where you said that when you sat down to uh, write this movie, that you sat down almost to write an action movie. You, mm -hmm. you sat down to write that Bonnie and Clyde story, but you find that you, you were more interested in what happened afterwards. Is that, is that the case? Yeah, I, I wanted to do something that was more traditionally a genre film, and I wanted to, you know, it was going to be an action movie, it was going to be a thriller, and it had elements of that Bonnie and Clyde idea to it, but it was still going to be, um, a, you know, a guy breaking out of jail and fighting his way across the countryside to reconnect with his lost love, and it was much more, you know, much more like Taken, <laughs> you know, you could have imagined Liam Neeson in the, in the movie, and I, I just didn't, it wasn't working for me, I wasn't interested in writing the action scenes, I kept skipping past them or, mm. or avoiding them, and I was much more interested in what happened after that action was over. And, and one of the things that I found that was hanging me up was like killing people on paper. You know, I, I'll go watch an, any, you know, your horror movies, your thrillers, I, I, I love them all. And I, and I usually don't have a problem watching random characters meet <laughs> unhappy demises on screen. Mm. But in terms of writing it, I felt extremely guilty. And I would, you know, have someone die and just wonder like, you know, how did they get to where they, how did they get to this horrible place where they're being yeah. killed and no one cares? because they're just another nameless character to, to get shot at in an action scene. So you have this moral compass guiding you all the way through the, uh, the writing process. It, I didn't expect that to happen, yeah. but it, it, it didn't even guide me. It just kind of put the brakes on it. So I put the script away for a while, and then about a year later, you know, certain other ideas started to enter their, my head, and, and this, again, felt like a good vehicle to get those out. And I picked up the story from, you know, the, the idea of a guy breaking out of prison and, and just used that as, like, the, the starting point and... And then it came very quickly, you know, the idea of dealing with the aftermath of something and just lingering in the aftermath and luxuriating in the tone of that was, was what was really exciting me. And, that's, and then the, once I got to that point, the script came very quickly. Absolutely. Before we uh, continue talking about the film, let's take a look at the, the first clip from the movie because I think it's, this deals very much with the idea of, of Bob being in prison and this yeah. is where he's writing home uh, some letters to Ruth. Yeah. So let's take a look at the first clip. Thank you. Dear Ruth. I dreamed about you again last night. I guess I dream about you every night. And most days too. I hold your face in my mind. I put your voice to you in my head. I think about your hair getting longer. Think about your belly getting bigger. I hear people talk about regret getting bigger. I think about the things I have done. We did what we did and that is who we are. They're going to cross out this sentence before you get to read it. But I know you know what it says. Every day I wake up thinking today's the day I'm going to see you. And one of those days, it will be so. And until then, I'll keep writing you. I'll write you every day. And someday you'll get a letter from me. And you will look up, and it'll be me who's handing it to you. Then we can forget about words, and I'll touch your face, and I'll kiss you. 
<clears throat> it's, um, it's a beautifully shot movie. And you were telling me backstage there that you shot it in 28 days. Yeah, that's correct. Which is pretty amazing. There's a lot of magic hour photography. I don't know if you want to explain what that is as well for, for, for people here. But uh, was it frustrating? Because I imagine there was a lot of time just waiting for the sun to come. And We, we and really, shoot. you know, we, there's so many locations in the movie and there's like so much material in it that we really had to schedule everything very exactly to, to be able to shoot the exteriors at that time of day. And, and so the magic hours, you know, when you're, when the sun's getting down and it's closer to the horizon and it makes everything just look prettier. And especially, you know, when you're shooting in the middle of the summer, the sun is so hot and so, you know, yeah. so harsh all the time. You want to wait till that time of day when it's softer and it'll look, it'll look better. And so, yeah, we, our AD, just, our assistant director, just did a, a knockout job of, of making sure that every day that we were shooting, we would be able to run outside and do something. You know, we, we had these really intense sequences, like especially the shootout at the beginning of the movie yeah. where they get caught where you know, we had one day to, to shoot that and about 20 minutes to shoot the entire like, run up the hillside. And really? it, when you see the movie, it's, like, it's, it's a lot of stuff. And, and we just had all, everybody out there rehearsing for hours. So they could, once, we, once the light got right, we could just shoot it without cutting just really fast, just one shot to the next to the next. Oh, wow. And, um, and so yeah, it was, it was definitely tight, but uh, you know, thanks to good, a good assistant director, <laughs> we were able to pull it off. So technically with the squibs and Action sequences, that sort of thing. That that wasn't a huge problem then. Surprisingly, all the action yeah. stuff, you know, all this talk about being the aftermath of action. There still is a, a, some degree of action in the yeah. movie, and that was that was the easiest stuff to do because it's fairly mechanical in a lot of ways. It's very there's a lot of clockwork to it, and you you know you want the squibs to go off at the right time and get the timing right. But aside from that, it's it's all it, it, it's much easier to do than say a very emotional scene between two characters because mm. that's just you're you're leaving yourself open for a lot more, you know, there, there's so much more that can happen in that environment versus like an action scene where it's just like, okay, we need this shot where this happens, which will lead us to this shot where the gun will go off to this shot where the squib hits. And, and that's very, you know, just by the numbers versus the emotional stuff, which is so much more delicate. Absolutely. Um, and obviously it's, it's Terrence Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara, as we saw there. And the, the shootout scene has a, a great moment where they're being led away by the police. And I think it's the, uh, the poster of the film. Yeah, it is. Uh, such a great image. Was that something that you had in your head? When you're writing something, do you think, this could be a poster image if I get this right? It wasn't, I, was, I wasn't thinking that would be the poster image, yeah. but at the same time, I sort of was. I was like, this is the defining image of the movie because mm. it's written in the script exactly as it is on screen. It describes it in the script as being a shot that lasts for you know a, about a minute long. It's like a long, long, long walk with no dialogue, mm -hmm. and and the idea was that this is a shot that has to convey the separation that's going to define the rest of the movie because that's the last time you see the characters together mm -hmm. um, for most of the film, mm -hmm. and and we want to have that resound to a certain degree, to a, to a great degree, and so I, I wanted an image that would just nail that home, and, and that was the one that was in the script. I believe you gave a very uh, interesting piece of direction to Casey and Rooney as well. Yeah, I, I basically told them, you know, without using any dialogue, just try to stay as close together as you possibly can. You know this is the last time as characters that you'll be seeing each other for a very long time, so just try to spend every second of it getting as close as possible to each other. And then I told the police officers to try to keep them as far away apart as oh, possible, really? and, and then we just called action, and that was what happened. How many takes? I think we did six takes and we used the fourth one. Okay, okay. Because uh, it's a, the, the casting, the casting is fantastic. You know, obviously Casey Affleck, Rooney Mara, Ben Foster, mm -hmm. uh, who's uh, very atypical in this, in, this, in this role. We'll see uh, later on. Yeah. Um, you've got Keith Carradine, people like that. Charles Baker, who's so great in Breaking yeah. Bad. Um, 
can you talk about finding your cast? Because I believe, did you write with these people in mind or did you no, just happen upon it? I wrote it with, I didn't know what scale this movie would be made on or how much money I would have to make it or if I was, you know, I, I, I was prepared to go just with my friends off to, you know, my backyard, which is basically, I live in Texas, so it's... Would you have been Bob? <laughs> I wouldn't have played any part myself. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I, I won't do that, but I would have shot it myself. And, and you know, I made my first film for $12,000, mm. and I was ready to do this one on the same scale, like very, very low-key. And, you know, I knew all the locations I could use. I knew what I had at my disposal, and it wouldn't have been exactly the same movie, but it would have been very similar. And at a certain point... Um, because I just decided I was going to make it, you know, I, the ball was rolling and we were location scouting and, and I had a short that got into Sundance and after that people started asking me what I was doing next and I said, I'm making this movie, we're going to shoot next winter and it's going to be great. And people would ask if they could read the script and more and more people were asking about the script and it, you know, it got out there, you know, this is the short story version of it, <laughs> but it got out there. We got there time, we got loads of time. And, uh, and some agents started reading it and asked if they could, you know, if I had any actors that I would like to send it to. Mm. And that was a whole new, you know, a world to me, a, a whole new approach. Like, you know, the idea of actually casting it with, with actors that people are aware of was something I'd never tried to do before. And, mm. and basically, I didn't want to, you know, just get movie stars for the sake of having movie stars. I wanted to, if, if I had this opportunity, I wanted to cast with actors who I thought would be perfect for the parts mm. and Casey was the first person I thought of and he read it and we sat down and I, I remember sitting at a cafe waiting for him to show up and I'm like mom I'm about to meet Casey Affleck this is pretty amazing I don't know what this is going to be like and we, he sat <laughs> down and, and we we spent about you know a minute just getting to know each other and then it was mm. very quickly clear that we were kindred spirits and and we just talked about all sorts of things and the next day he wrote me and said he wanted to do it wow. and so it was remarkably easy and and Rooney was uh, someone who this was right before Girl with the Dragon Tattoo opened. So she was, everybody knew who she was because of that movie, but at the same time, no one really knew who she was yeah. because they, all they knew was this crazy goth character who was an international literary phenomenon and she had somehow yeah. gotten that part. And, yeah. and I loved the idea of Ruth, the character she plays, being someone that you don't have any... That, who, who, who blends into that environment. I love the idea of casting someone who doesn't feel like, again, like a movie star in a small town in Texas. And because no one has any idea, or at that point, no one had any idea what she actually looked like even, because between Social Network and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, you have yeah, yeah, no yeah. idea who she is. I, I, I really felt confident that she would be just the chameleon I was looking for, someone who could blend in. And so we sent the script to her as well. And she, again, we sat down, had coffee, and, and she said yes. It was remarkably easy. And she was the only <laughs> actress who read it. And, uh, and then Ben Foster was someone who I... You know, he read it, wanted to meet, and as soon as I met him, you mentioned that it's atypical, and yeah. you know, he's someone who I've seen and admired for in countless movies, but he's always playing this in very intense character mm. or a villain, like in yeah. Three Ten to Yuma, like just someone who who has a great deal of intensity. But in person, he had a kindness to him and a and a, a very gentlemanly quality that I'd never seen on screen, almost a, a chivalrous quality, mm. and. That was the character that I had written for the, the sheriff that, um, that becomes entwined in the characters' lives. And I loved the idea of him not only doing something different than he'd done before on screen, but also bringing a touch of intensity to this character who on the page is just a very nice guy. Yeah. And, and you know, once again, he just said yes. So it was, 
it was, you know, incredibly lucky. I don't expect it to ever be that easy again, but, <laughs> but they just all said yes. <laughs> so you also have a, a different layer as well with the relationship between Ruth and the sheriff mm -hmm. because of what happens at the beginning. I don't think it's a spoiler to say it's that. It's not a spoiler at all. Yeah, uh, she, she shoots him. Yeah, yeah in, the, in the opening scene, or not quite the opening scene, in the first five minutes of the movie, she, there's a shootout. She shoots the sheriff, Patrick Wheeler. Mm -hmm. Bob takes the rap for it, goes to prison. She stays out and has a baby. Absolutely. And, uh, and he... You never, it's never clear, you know, until towards the end whether or not he knows that she shot, she's the one that actually shot him. Mm. And, and yet he has a, fascina like a fascination with her that's bordering on like a crush. Like he, <laughs> he, he just keeps showing up. <laughs> I think you've set up the next clip nicely. Let's, uh, let's take a look at uh, Ben and Rooney in action. Is there any news? No, not today. Uh, I think you want these back. They're just gathering dust. Can you read them? No, ma'am. Why not everyone else has? I don't mind to read. Can I ask you something? Sure. Do you mean what you said about Bob not coming back for you? Yeah, I do. Well, I was thinking maybe y'all want to get out of town until all this blows over. You mean until he gets caught? Where will we go? Just someplace safe. Did you come? Someone will come with you. I think I'll just stay here. You know, I gotta work and Sylvie's got her birthday. We'll be just fine. Yeah, sure. She's gonna be four. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. What'd she want? She wants a horse. Like a real horse? Where are you gonna put it? <laughs> so yeah, normally I'd be expecting Ben Foster to buy the horse and cut its head off. Or, yeah, exactly. Or do to, um, <laughs> Leave it in our bed sheets to discover <laughs> yeah, in the morning. Yeah. Um, this feels to me like a movie that that could have emerged from the seventies. Was that a big touchstone for you uh, in yeah, terms of your I, influences? You know, I think for someone of my generation, especially like that's sort of regarded as a golden age of filmmaking, mm. just because of the way the studio system was in that, you know, that state of disarray and people were able to make very personal movies and have them put out, you know, in wide release. So I certainly love, you know, you know all the movies that Altman and Coppola and, and every, you know, everyone was making at that, at that period. And, and one of the reasons I set the movie in the 70s was partially because of that. Yeah. Um, but, but I also, you know, it's, there, there's, there's a messiness to that era of filmmaking that I just love, you know, especially with, with Altman's films who, you know, he's one of my, my very favorite American filmmakers and, and just this, this sort of uh, willingness to kind of throw the story away and to yeah. focus on the filmmaking and let the filmmaking be a, a bigger part of the storytelling than, than what is on the page. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I just find remarkable and, and I wanted to, to sort of, you know, 
capture what that meant to me. I wasn't trying to replicate that or mm -hmm. to you know pay homage to it so much. It was just sort of like take what I what I found valuable in those films and what what meant a lot to me in those films and filter it through my own perspective. There's quite an elliptical, elegaic quality to the filmmaking here. Was that, which presumably is something you were striving for from the off? Absolutely, the, the elliptical quality of it. I really wanted it to play almost like a memory. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it, it plays less like an actual story than a memory of a story, and uh, or or a translation. You know, one of the things I often talked about was I wanted the film to feel like a song, like a folk song that maybe you've heard before, but this is a new a new cover of it in a different key. <laughs> and and the elliptical qualities of it. You know, I come from an editing background, and, and that's just you know a, a, a method of storytelling that appeals to me, to to jump in and out of moments and focus on the <laughs> moments you might not expect to get the attention that, that I that I choose to give them, mm. and to just you know sort of slip in and out of the story in a in a very fluid way. Like I, you know every now and then there'll be a hard edit that juts up against something else, but more yeah. often than not you're just slipping. You know it's like a slipstream approach. Mm. How long did it take to edit this one? And did you edit with someone else? I edited with uh, two other editors, and you know, normally I cut by myself, but with this film, because we had such a, a tight turnaround time, I wanted to work, and I wanted to also just have someone else's input because I was afraid that I might just get lost with the with, with the footage. But um, we cut it in about three months. Okay. And <laughs> in retrospect, that was way too fast, but it, it turned <laughs> out fine. It turned out fine. This is interesting because. Um, uh, Shane Carruth's film uh, *Upstream Color* uh, opens this week in the UK, and you edited that. Yeah. So you, you're still working as an editor. Is that something, or you just are you doing favors for? You know, like I, I was, I started off editing because I needed, you know, to edit to, as a director. I, I didn't know any ed editors, so I learned how to edit as a means to an end, so I okay. could edit my films, and it, it gradually turned into a career, and um, and I, you know, did a lot of commercials and music videos, but also I would try to focus especially on independent films because that's what I loved. And, mm. and it taught me a great deal about filmmaking. And Upstream Color was the last film that I cut. And I was editing that right up until the day before I left to go start shooting this movie. Right. And, and that was a, a remarkable experience. And I, I hope to keep editing, but you know, the goal was always to be to make a career out of directing, writing and directing. And so mm. I hope to stick to that. But at the same time, I love editing. Too much. I'm cutting a friend's short film in my hotel right now, so <laughs> it's a it's something else I'll still want to do to, because it, it really is a phenomenal, you know, way to get better at telling stories through cinema, and yeah. uh, and you learn a lot working with other directors. So I I don't want to stop doing it, even though I hope that I can keep directing at a more regular yeah. rate at this point. To what extent? Because I I really I, th I think there's almost a pool of directors at the moment. There's a, there's a great influx of talent at the moment in the American indie scene, and you guys all seem to work together and seem to be attracted to each other in, in some sort of way? Is, is, is there like some sort of Craigslist that you all you go on and find it, each other? It's, it's just called film festivals. <laughs> yeah, that's you, it. You, uh, we, you know, especially starting in like 2005 when my short film started playing at film festivals, I would travel to, it started at South by Southwest in Austin and mm -hmm. I'd go there and, and, uh, and I met all these other directors who were there with their first films and we all just became friends and the circle would get bigger and bigger and, and we'd travel around the country every year or every other year with new films that we'd made and, and always see each other and run into each other and, and it gradually turned into a, into a situation where we were helping each other out on each other's films and and so it's a really wonderful you know support group <laughs> and, and, and it's great because it doesn't have any geographical boundaries we're all just like happy to hop on a flight and go help you know hold a boom pole if we oh, need great. to. Oh fantastic. So what made you want to become a filmmaker in the first place? I mean, the usual Star Wars. <laughs> 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 I, I don't think uh, I'm, too, I'm too unique in that regard, but uh -huh. 
But yeah, when I was I, I was too young to see it, any of them in the theaters, but uh, I had all the toys and the books. And then when they came out on video, uh, I we I grew up without a television, but I'd go to my grandparents' house and and they'd show them to me, and and that quickly became all I ever wanted to do. So did you grab a camera as at a young age? Were you? I had to, you know, I had I had. Friends in my family would have, you know, some of my relatives had cam camcorders. So whenever we'd take trips to visit them, I'd plan, you know, all these movies to shoot while we were on those vacations. <laughs> and then when I was in, uh, when I was in high school with my first summer job, I saved up enough to buy a camera, and that was the first one I owned. So how many short films do you think you've made? Because I, I read some of the. I mean, there's the ones lot. that there's the ones that count, yeah. the ones that I'll talk about or show you, and then the ones <laughs> yeah. that no one will ever see. <laughs> and of, of the ones that I would show you, it's like six or seven, but okay. there's a lot more that. Hopefully we'll stay. <laughs> We're talking 30, 40, 50 more than that, maybe? You know, like, yeah, 30 seems like a reasonable number. I, I've number. actually never counted, you know? And so there's a box out just waiting to happen. You realize it, there's a, it's, a, it's a box of VHS tapes in my closet that uh, <laughs> are securely taped shut. <laughs> <laughs> One of the questions we get an awful lot is how do you break into the film industry? You, you've, you've talked about it a little bit. You started off wanting to be a director and you went into editing. Is that something you would recommend for everybody, or is there, there's no cast-iron way to get in? No, there, I mean, there's not. I, I think the, the, the only thing you can do, I, there's a quote from Steven Soderbergh that I have always held true, which is talent plus perseverance equals luck. And I think that <laughs> is true, because the talent part you can, get, you can gain. You know, you can, some people are probably born filmmakers. I don't think I was, because that's why I have a box of VHS tapes that I'll never show anybody. <laughs> and and uh, so you, you persevere and you get better and you don't quit. I think not quitting is a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. and, and you just continually try to grow. Like I never, I never decided I wanted to make a certain, I never was like, I'm gonna you know, just strive to make Star Wars because that's what I like when I'm seven years old. I was always looking for new types of cinematic experiences, seeing what other people were doing and trying to push myself as well. And that I think is something that, you know, regardless of whether you go to film school or just, you know, go to work as a PA on a set or however you go about getting into making films, like mm. persevering and trying to get better and trying to continue to grow and never resting, never reaching any plateau is really important because that's how your films just get better. Yeah. And the better they get, the more of a chance you have of getting them seen. And, you know, at a certain, there was a point that was very clear like, where I was making movies that were just rip-offs of other movies. And that's, you know, I was just like saying, oh, I like this thing and I saw in a movie, I'm going to imitate that in a short yeah. film. And, and those are the films that no one ever saw because no, it was very clear that I was just, you know, I was learning on them, but I was also just, you know, imitating. And yeah. at a certain point, I decided I wanted to figure out how to tell a story that was like mine and uniquely yeah. mine. And once I started doing that, you know, all of a sudden I got acceptance letters from film festivals and they started to be shown. And, and it was a very clear demarcation of like once I really decided to be true to myself and what mattered to me people started to pay attention to it wow. and and then you know, you know the other key to it is being you know okay with being really poor for a long time <laughs> because because <laughs> that's the other part you just really have to you know get used to making movies for no money and, yeah. and not getting paid to do it and and putting everything you possibly earn into it so that you can make you know make a film that can make a mark and hopefully help you get a little bit more of a budget the next time and on and on. So what you take in something like Kickstarter? Is that something that you would use or? I, I would have used, used it if, yeah. if, if it had came, like when I made my first feature in 2009, or 2008 rather, I would certainly have used it if it existed back then. Mm. At this point, um, I think it's a wonderful tool. I, give, I donate so much money to Kickstarter. I was looking at my history, and I was like, wow, I, I, just, I, I hope that this karmically pays back somewhere <laughs> in the future, or at least a lot of good movies get made. I love it. Um, I don't know if, I, 
I don't know if I'd have the perseverance to do it or not, but, um, but if, the, if the project was right and the need arose, I certainly would, would be completely open to it. Absolutely. Uh, we've one more clip from the film, and then you guys can ask David anything that's on your minds. Um, so this is a clip with featuring David, uh, sorry, Keith Carradine. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you want to set up his character. And, and Keith Carradine is playing sort of, he used to be sort of like a, a, a criminal figurehead in this small Texas town, like the kind of guy that, you know, as they say, ran the town. And he is, his son died early in the movie. And since then he quit being, he, he, he just, he laid down his gun and, and went to work, just runs a little antique store. And he was sort of an adoptive father to Bob and Ruth, mm. and also someone who taught them and you know, set them on their criminal path. And so Bob's coming back to, to pay him a visit. Absolutely. Let's take a look at the clip. Oh, so I heard you buy Ruth a house. I'm letting her stay in one of my old places. It's got a big old yard where her little girl can play. Hey, that's my little girl, too. Yeah, I'll tell you. She's about cute enough to make you want to give up. You did one thing right. I'll give you that. I'll do what I can to look after both of them. Yeah. Well, I guess I'll handle that from here. Oh, you think so? Yes, sir. Well, I'll tell you what. You do whatever you want. You take all your money, and you get yourself as far away from here as you possibly can. But you listen to me when I tell you, you leave those girls alone. I can't do that. Yeah, you can. Fantastic stuff. So if you have any questions you want to ask David, now put your hands up. We've got roving microphones going around the room. And don't be shy. Yes, please. We'll just wait for the microphone to get around to you, sir. You said you shot it in 28 days. Was there much rehearsal time? Because it seems like quite an emotive movie. I can, uh, you know, if, you, if you're sort of rushing around trying to, trying to shoot things so quickly, it must be hard for them to, you know, how, how, what was the process for that? It, it was hard. And we unfortunately had no rehearsal time at all. I, I, in fact, the scene that we just saw the clip from the most rehearsal we had for that was me rehearsing with Casey, where I played Keith Carradine's part because <laughs> Keith wasn't there yet, <laughs> and and uh, and there was very, you know, it was very rushed. Was like we didn't have a lot of time to, you know, have the the actors even get to know each other. Casey and Rooney met, you know, a few days before they had to start shooting together, wow. and and they only have a few scenes together in the movie, but it's still they had to have a chemistry to carry, yeah. you know, to last through the whole movie. So we. We were just crossing our fingers that they would actually like each other, which they did, and they, they got along famously. But it was tough, and we didn't, we didn't really... There were a few scenes, just because Casey was around at the beginning a little bit longer, where we were able to rehearse with him and some of the other actors, like Nate Parker or Rami Malek, who have other scenes in the movie. But as far as the three principal characters, there was actually no rehearsal time at all. It really came down to just me getting on the... You know, we, Casey would be shooting, they were all shooting other movies, and so I would just talk to them in the evenings, and we'd have long phone calls mm. about the characters. But, you know, the great thing about them being great actors is that they kind of came to set at 100%, and we were just, had to get them to 125. So <laughs> it, was, it was luckily, you know, I, we, we, were, we were in a good starting place, even though we didn't have any rehearsal time. I read another interview with you where you said that uh, Casey had a lot of ideas, mm -hmm. not all of which he shared with you. 
Uh, so did he spring things on you as the cameras rolled? Or? Uh, yeah, absolutely. He he, as he likes to call it, he always wants to do a take where he destroys things. That's how he puts it. <laughs> and 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 sometimes he'll ask for that take. Other times he'll just do it. And and he's a master at knowing what the parameters are. Like he won't do something so out of left field that it would ruin the take or take the other actor out of the moment. Mm. It's perfectly within character and within his character, like everything he'll do. And, and so a lot of those things that he would do are in the movie because they just, they're, they're moments of, of life that you know, I would never have imagined writing, that they're completely spontaneous, mm. but that he has come up with through his own you know, ingestion of the character and, uh, and, they're, and they're wonderful little moments. And there's a lot of them that didn't make the movie, but the ones that did, I, I really love. Okay, fantastic. I think you had a question here, the gentleman in the t-shirt, and then, then the lady in front, yeah. Or we can go to the lady in front, then the gentleman in the t-shirt. I don't really mind, thank you. Okay, uh, I was just wondering, have you ever started a project and then lost inspiration on completing the project and stopped working on it? And if you have, how did you find inspiration to go back to it? I never have, I've never shot something. Actually, I have. I, I uh, usually, it happens with scripts all the time. Like constantly I'll start scripts and they'll get to a sticky point or I'll just lose interest and I'll set them aside. And more often than not, I never go back to them. But this is one of the rare cases where I went back to it. And it's not so much a matter of finding inspiration as it is like the inspiration will just like all of a sudden spring out of nowhere and the idea will come to my head and, and it'll compel me to go back to something. But usually it doesn't. Usually, you know, I'll have an idea and if the idea and I, you know, doesn't keep me going, doesn't keep me excited, doesn't keep me awake at night, it'll just sort of fade away and... and I'll, I'll write 20 pages or 80 pages or you know, however many pages I write, and 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 then I just I kind of lose interest, and <laughs> and it's never that big of a deal. Like it's not like yeah. I feel like oh I've wasted all this time. It was just that's the nature of it. There's one film that I made that remains unedited. It was a documentary, and 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 that's one that I hope inspiration returns someday because uh, okay. all that footage is sitting on a hard drive, and I've never what's never. It, what's cut that it about? Can you say? It's a long story again, but I shot, it's, a, it's a, um, a documentary about an independent movie theater in Springfield, Missouri okay. that um, was a wonderful movie theater. And I, I shot the entire film and then all of the footage was stolen. And, <laughs> I, I, and I, I hadn't backed it up. This is my big learning of like oh. backing everything up. So I went back and shot the whole thing again. But by that point, you know, it was such a blow losing the whole thing oh. that... Uh, I shot it all again, but just never cut it together. Oh my god! And you didn't get the footage back? I know. I mean, it was uh, the first time I ever shot anything that wasn't on tape. It was like uh, one of those first time I used like uh, card cameras that used cards, and okay, uh, yeah, yeah. and I just stupidly didn't back it up, and so the whole thing. I've got like two minutes of it that I had ex exported and and saved, and, and everything else was gone. And oh my god! It was really, really good. So. Oh man! So somewhere out there, there's some somewhere sort of unscrupulous thief who's going, I don't know what this is. I yeah, can't. He Maybe probably, he's edited it. Maybe. That'd be, yeah, if it showed up somewhere, that'd be fantastic. If you're listening, please do send it to yeah. David. Uh, anonymous email address will be fine. Uh, yes, please, sir. Thank you. Uh, hello. Uh, I was just curious about the title of the film. Did it have a sort of a genesis behind it or a meaning? The title predates the movie. I, I, I'm... A, have a friend, a friend who's really, he actually does music for this movie, uh, some of the music in it, he, who's really into roots and country music, like American uh, folk music and roots music, and he 
gave me this like CD of just all this random old music, and I heard a song and thought I heard those lyrics in it, but it wasn't quite right. Okay. Like I, I, I later realized that I had misheard the lyrics, but nonetheless, <laughs> this phrase that I had halfway misheard was I really liked it. It had a nice ring to it and a nice tone, and and I, you know, at the time thought, oh, someday that'd be cool to make a movie with this as the title. Okay. And then when I was writing this film, I, you know. Once I started writing the actual movie, the movie that it became, and not the action movie version, one of the things that I really wanted to do going into it was, like I said, make a film that felt like a folk song. I yeah. really want, that was, you know, more than, more than a movie, I wanted this to feel like a song. And so I thought it would be appropriate to have a title that evoked that and suggested that and that felt like song lyrics. And so I went back to these misheard lyrics from years before and, and they, they fit right in. It just felt really appropriate for the, texture and the tone of the movie. And there's a thematic relevance to it, too, because the title suggests, that question suggests that, you know, there's an, the potential for goodness in everybody. Everyone yeah. has innate goodness to them, and that's something that's very resonant in the film itself. But more important than that to me was just the idea that you would go see a movie with this as a title, and the title sort of predisposes you to what you're about to see. Yeah. And it's never mentioned in the movie. It's, no one ever says that phrase, but <laughs> it, you know both in terms of the, the, the rhythm of it, the cadence of it, and the, the, the idiomatic quality of it. The word ain't is very specific. You know, like all of those things just sort of put you in the right mindset mm. on a subconscious level to enjoy the movie. So the original lyrics, can you remember them? Oh, the only th I, need, I, I need to go to my friend and ask him if he has that CD still. Okay. Because I don't know. Them Bodies was right. Okay. And it might have been Ain't Them Bodies, and I've added the Saints. Okay. Because it rhymes, but I don't know. Like, well, all I know, find out. yeah, I've tried Googling it and I can't find it. So. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, please. Hey, uh, um, Hi. What What advice would you give to a young actor slash filmmaker who wants to sort of get ahead in in making films, particularly in particularly American and English industry? I, I ooh, that's a good question. I I think that if you're an actor and a filmmaker, one of the best things to do is to just make films and act in them. My, my wife is an actress and a filmmaker also, and that's what she's doing. She's like, make, you know, rather than wait around for someone to cast her, she's writing parts for herself and then directing these short films, and, and that's working out quite well. And I think that also just, you know, based on my own experience and seeing how people meet each other and, and how collaborations are born, that, that going to film festivals and watching lots of films and then meeting the filmmakers that have made them and, and you know, trying to, to just, you know, talk to them about it and becoming, whether a friendship is born or not, just having that connection helps a lot. And, and, and I really think that, you know, especially in this day and age when making films on a technological level is so much easier that, you know, you can just send somebody a link and say, hey, check out my movie. I really enjoyed your movie. Check this one out. And that you know, whether or not the person actually watches it or not is another question, but just like getting out that way, I think is, mm. is valuable. I mean, that, it, I've seen, there's people in my movie that are actors who I met at film festivals oh, and really? we just hit it off and I've worked with them in other movies and then when this one came around, I was like, hey, I need you to come be in this, in this, in this one. And so they're all, you know, there's a lot of people in there that are, there's a, all the, the, the three bad guys in the movie. We haven't seen the clip with them, but there's three bad guys. Two of them are, our filmmakers, who I just met at a film festival, became friends, and I was like, hey, you guys look mean. Come play the bad guys in my movie. So Nice and easy. But as a filmmaker, putting yourself out there, do you have to become inured almost to rejection to 
to Completely. know. Completely. Yeah. <laughs> you have to like have a thick skin. There's no doubt yeah. about it. And it, it helps like, you know, to have that all the way through. Like, so you get, you get used to getting rejection letters. And so those bounce off of you. Then you start getting, <laughs> then you start getting acceptance letters, but people don't like the movies. So then you have to get used to them, like bad reviews and all that. So, you know, oh you have God. to have thick skin all the way through. Okay. Interesting. Uh, we've got time for a couple of last questions with David. Uh, yes, please. The gentleman right at the back here. Hey, um, yeah, I just want to know about the what is the Sundance uh, all about. I mean, when when it's begun, and you also talked about working uh, with uh, Pixar. I mean, what's the contributed? I mean, so like what Sundance contributed to the film? No, I mean, well, what it's all about? How it start and whatever. how you get in? How you get into Sundance and yeah, that's sort of, yeah. Um, the process well, of that. I had a short film that got in. And that was just a random submission. I just mailed it in and it got in. So it was like very, very lucky. And that was in 2011. Mm -hmm. And they have these writing labs and producing labs and directing labs that I've applied to so many times, never gotten in, over and over and over again. And I've, you know, I've made it through the first round of submissions but never made it past that. Right. But um, after I got that short film in, my producers, who are also my best friends, applied to the producing lab with this script for Ain't Them Body Saints. And they actually got into that. And the producing labs is sort of like a fellowship where they just take the producers to the Sundance Institute in Utah and, and you're there with like five other fellows and, and they just help you, you know, figure out how to best approach producing the movie. So I wasn't a part of that. I was just on the, they would call me every night and say, here's what we learned today, but <laughs> I wasn't a part of that. But, th but the great thing about that is that Sundance supports you. Like they don't, yeah. they don't give you money, they don't give you, or they, they give grants to some projects, but not to us. Um, they, they just are there if you need them. Like if you need like advice, if you need like them to read a script and give you notes, if, they, if you need a, a stamp of approval, they can help you with that. And, and so after the producing labs were over, that was like in the summer, and in January, the following January, the writing labs happened, and I applied for that again, and that time I got in because everybody, because the producing labs, everybody had read it and was like, okay, this is a project we'd like to support. And there, you go there and you just spend a lot of time just talking about your script. You don't do any writing, you just talk about it. Okay. And it's again a very supportive environment where they just want to help you gain confidence as a storyteller. And then, and none of that is a guarantee that you'll get your movie made. It's 2012 or 2012? 2012. It's 2012, okay. Um, but luckily we did get it made. It was six months later we shot the movie. So, it so we actually did manage to pull the money together. And, yeah. and, and then, but, but then it, the, the second thing that's not a guarantee is getting into the festival. So mm. it, there are lots of films that go through all these programs, but they don't get into the festival because it's still just you know, the programmer's decision on that regard. It's not a free pass by any means. Mm. But luckily they liked the movie so we were able to get, get to the the festival and and that's where we premiered last year absolutely and the uh, the second thing the gentleman asked about was pixar what oh was I mean, pixar didn't have anything to do with the movie but we did do uh, they uh they go to sundance every year i know i i didn't know this at the time but i know now and just watch all the movies and and then pick a few that they want to show uh to their employees on their campus in emeryville so they chose our film and we got to go take a tour of Pixar Studios and then show the movie to all the Pixar employees who, <laughs> at the time, like, I think we were there the day they finished Monsters University, which was, everybody was very happy to be done with that movie. And, uh, <laughs> and so they, yeah, they just showed the movie. It was, it was uh, just a fun thing for them to do for their employees. So in a year of surreal moments, was that possibly the most surreal moment? 
No, <laughs> the most surreal moment was earlier that morning, actually, because okay. we were in the Bay Area. We were, we were doing more work on the soundtrack of the movie in San Francisco, and we got to go tour ILM. And seeing like the bike from E.T. and all these Star Wars <laughs> props and matte paintings, that was insanely surreal. Like that, you know, as someone who grew up and got into movies because of Star Wars, getting to go tour ILM is pretty much the bee's knees. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, time for one last question. Uh, yes, please, here, lady in the uh, front row. Thank you. Hi. Um, you've had a pretty great 2013, and uh, you've been linked to quite a few projects since Sundance, Pete's Dragon, and Torso. I don't know how many are true or not. <laughs> but um, I'm just wondering what's coming up next for you, and do you have, the uh, last couple of days, a bit of a new project called To Be Two with yeah. Casey Affleck. Is that... What's going on with that and everything? So right after we finished making this movie, you know, Casey and I had so much fun that we wanted to make another movie together. And he gave me this short story that he had um, always loved and always wanted to make it as a film. And I loved it too. And so we decided to make that. And so we've been working on that for a while now. And it just hit the Hollywood Reporter two or three days ago. Hmm. Um, and so I'm doing that. I'm writing it right now. Um, we hope to make it next year. I'm also writing this film uh, for Robert Redford to star in that I would also direct. And that's a, uh, based on a New Yorker article called Old Man the Gun. And I, if, I could, if I could, I would love to do both of those movies back to back next year because I'm really excited about both of them. Wow. And then, yeah, Disney hired, hired me and my producer on this film to, to write a remake of Pete's Dragon, which is <laughs> bizarre and crazy, but also kind of awesome because... <laughs> It's really, they're really letting us just do whatever we want right now. And, yeah. and we're really, like the script that we're writing, if it gets made, I would, I would love to see that movie. <laughs> I mean, it's a beautiful, it'll be a really wonderful family film that I think will endure. If it, I, I really hope it gets made. So what's a regular day for you at the moment? Are you uh, getting up in the morning, writing a science fiction film from 8 to 12, then lunch, Some days, then Pete's yeah. Dragon? <laughs> Some <laughs> days it is like that. Um, usually it's more like I'll do one day on one project and then the next day on another don't get confused. And, but they, they do, especially because in Pete's Dragon, the dragon's name is Elliot. And then the, and the one that I'm writing with Casey, the main character's name is Elliot also. So they, it's really bizarre. Uh, there are like weird little parallels that end up happening. And little lines of dialogue, they'll show up in one and the other. And, but uh, it's, it is, a, my, I'm courting schizophrenia to a certain degree, but it's really, it's really fun. And I'm, I'm very lucky that... I, you know, these movies are possibly going to happen, so it's really fun. So which one's going to go first, you know, at it, this point I, in time? Partially depends on which one I finish writing first, but, <laughs> okay. uh, but I, I, I don't know. It's, it's too early to say, but I, I really hope they both happen, you know, back to back. That's my, that'd be a, a dream come true for next year. Well, wish you all the best. Thank you very much. And I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Uh, thanks, guys, for coming. Thanks for your questions. Thanks, most of all. David Lowry, thank you. Thank you.